welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend, colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on? What's going on? The clubhouse is going on. That is what the people want. It is amazing. Can't believe the response that we're seeing in this short time that we've launched it. It's crazy. We're going straight into the Scholar Clubhouse. What is that? Well, if you sign up for the Scholar program, in addition to all the courses, Zooms, all that stuff, you automatically become a Clubhouse member, which is your, you know, it's on your phone, on your computer. You just get to chat and talk and interact with all these other coaches instantly. Man, and it's crazy what people share. We got full training programs. We got... We got workouts where people are going back and forth. You know, Daniel, for example, posted this really interesting workout where, you know, they're going 800 on the track, jogging to a hill, 22nd hills, going back to the 800 on the track, and they're dissecting the science of that. And yes, and how like muscle recruitment changes and all that good stuff. That's just one example. And we've got you know, so many great coaches in there sharing cool things. So get on board, man. That's yeah, tough. it's like, you know, having gone to the Altus ACP, which I recommend everyone, you know, taking advantage of and go to, especially now that's coming back in person. Um, you know, I went there several times and the value of it isn't necessarily the presentations that happen, right? Like those are cool very interesting and insightful, but they spark the dialogue of the poolside chat and then also the dialogue after hours, right? And that's essentially what the clubhouse is and was and why it makes it such a force is it's just that everyday chatter of like-minded people and really intelligent people. Like our scholars are super smart and they're just talking about different problems, solutions, thoughts, ideas, like sharing different, you know, we have a a thread here on books, what books people are reading, um, you know, to help them solve problems. Like that's the cool thing about it is, and you have that accessible at any time. It's not like, Oh, I only can get it here at this event or there. And that intersection interaction, amazing to see. And the thing is, it's not like social media where you're pandering for likes or attention or trying to get more followers. Like, no, everyone's already invested. You're invited. There's, you're already in the tribe, man. So get on it because I'm learning a lot and it's just so amazing to see my phone's buzzing all the time. Super cool. Yes. One thing I want to point out is we have this nice, lovely question and answer section where it's if you got a coaching problem, like you just go in there and it's been so cool to see other coaches jump in. You know, someone earlier um, in the week asked about a return from injury plan and we have like several guys sending like physio, like athletic trainer, like legit return to injury from all sorts of plans. And I'm just going through this. I'm like, well, I'm going to borrow this one. This is really good. Thanks for, thanks for sending this out. But that's, that's the beauty of the, the tribe, man. You get enough good, smart people, you know, interacting and we all learn and grow. So if you want to be a part of it, if you're wondering what in the world's going on, sign up for the scholar, pro, the running scholar program, and then you'll become a member of the clubhouse, which just is an extension of what John and I are doing, which is up the game of coaching, coaches education, coaching interaction into the 21st century. Let's use the tools and become better. Yeah, I mean, even just one more thing is like you know, uh, user 
uh, Wahoo CT, like she offered this great, um, what she calls BOS bouts of strengths workout, right? She's a busy wife, mama for owner, of small business, a coach, a marathoner. There's a lot going on her plate and she doesn't have the ability to carve out like a, you know, traditional, um, uh, 20, 30 minute, you know, strength solution. So her solution is just put different implements around the house. And then when she shows up into that room, you know, real quickly, like get it in, whether it's mini bands, kettlebells, free rate, a pull-up bar. It's brilliant because it's kind of what Dan John calls that farmer strength, right? You just, you go in there and you just go do that activity. So that's an amazing solution that's highly effective. You know, uh, when you, if you don't have the time and energy, just have this like concentrated strength session. I thought that was a great idea that's super practical and applicable that other people could steal for their own health and well-being or even, you know, their kids or their athletes, right? If you don't have time for that concentrated strength um, activity in your training program. People solving problems, man. That's all it is, you know, innovative problem solving. And it makes me so happy. We could have a whole episode on the things that people are doing in there, but we could, and it's just less than a dollar a day is the price of admission. Super cheap. Get, Get in, man. Stay away from your, you know, your coffee for a day and and you'll be good. All right. John can't stay away from the coffee. Steve, the answer is always more coffee. Not a problem. The answer is more coffee. You know. All right. (laughs) Let's dive into this week's episode, which is the science of training management. And how do we manage the messiness of the training process compared to the neatness of the training plan? Right. We've often talked about and in coaching, we often emphasize the neatness of the training plan. You know, even in coaches education, we're often, you know, um, graded essentially or show that we get our certification by creating training plans and training examples. That's the neat part. That's the part that we can, you know, there's no messy variables, but translating that over to the actual training and how to manage all the training. That's where the messiness comes in. And we're going to dive into all that and try and break it apart for you. Yeah. I mean, I wish athletes were robots and the metabolism was a predictable thing, but it's not. The response to exercise, the response to stress, stimulus, embarrassment, you know, from the metabolism and the, you know, health and well-being of the psychosocial part, Very, very highly unpredictable. You know, one thing I should point out there, which is kind of related, is if you look into the science of, you know, adaptation and training adaptation, all of our models are very messy. There is no, like, we like to think that it's very predictable. And when you apply this stimulus and we get this response, but it's so freaking messy. If you go down to, like, the, you know, genetic level of... um, of um training adaptation it's crazy like how many things get turned on you know after after a workout bout or a stressful workout and the different variation that you go through so the process like even though we have these you know cellier's general adaptation syndrome we've got this fitness fatigue you know uh theory but they're all they're all models that give us less messiness so that we can apply them. But the reality is none of them are truly perfectly correct. And we just have to appreciate that. 
it's true. I mean, enzyme signaling and, you know, hormonal releases and then that buildup and then your ability, your body's ability to process things, you know, and the time horizons that it takes is all dependent too on the uh, magnitude of the stimulus and the frequency of the stimulus and the volume of the stimulus. And that's, I think, the hardest thing to remember is the work you're doing is just the signal for the cascade of adaptation you want, right? And this is where we get into the minimum effective dosage or even, um, you know, the that heuristic and rule of thumb where like less is more. And, you know, Alan Bishop just actually posted a great tweet and he's like, no, less is less, more is more, better is better. And we often fall in this trap that we should do the least amount of possible. But the, the truth is we should do the best amount possible. But what is best? And what is better, right? And this is my argument with always running technique and form. Yeah, you can tell someone to go run a 20 mile, you know, long run. But if it's on really faulty mechanical structures and really faulty movement patterns, then the magnitude of impact that that mechanical stress will have might and probably will, you know, linger for several days afterwards as the resiliency of the mechanical structures of the body have to rebound, right? But what do we do? We say, oh, college, you know, uh, male athlete, cross-country runner, go run a 20-mile long run on Sunday. And, you know, just, all right, great, you got it in. And now Tuesday, we're going to do, you know, a really hard speed endurance type workout, right? Mile repeats, Ks, you know, what have you. And then what promptly happens is a very, very quick, uh, you know, niggles pop up that can cascade into injuries, stress fractures, these overuse syndromes we see constantly. Why? Not that the athlete wasn't resilient or prepared. It's just the density of work and the type of recovery horizons necessary wasn't there for their lack of mechanical efficacy. And that can be really hard to track. It's like, well, where, where are the, you know, um, benchmarks? What are the, the pinpoints? What are we looking for? And this is where the science of training management comes in because it's like, you know, like being a parent, you're juggling 20,000 things at once and yet our brains can't process that complexity. So we tend to like centrate on what is like the most important thing. And, you know, people want that simplicity, that clarity. Like if you're gonna do one or the other, what's it gonna be? Endurance work or speed work? It's like, no, you got to do it all. <laughs> and that's what makes it so hard and so much fun. Yeah, you know, it's it really is dealing with the the messiness of this whole process. And that's where I think it gets down to the whole premise of this of um this podcast is like the training plan itself is very neat and tidy and predictable, but then you get into the real world, you get into the, you know, the training and ideas like minimum effective dose or whatever it is are good and are like make some sense in theory, but then you get out there and you're like, you realize that all you're doing is predicting. All you're doing is saying, Hey, I think that four by mile at five at five minute pace with two minutes rest is going to give me the right stimulus and the right adaptation, but you don't really know. Right. And you don't really know afterwards either. Um, but this is this is where it's like you have to use like feedback you have to be like a proactive coach and not just reacting to things 
to see if your predictions are correct or if you need to like divert along the way in the moment during your workouts to make sure that you're, you know, you're headed in a right direction and getting that best kind of training adaptation versus the minimum or maximum. And that's where I think, you know, uh, superficial techniques and measures like time while really comforting and really clear can also at the same time be very, um, you know, dangerous and make more the training exercise and activity versus actually something that's going to be an achievement. And so what do I mean by that? Well, a lot of times we just say, okay, run this time and this pace. And then we have this nice sequential weekly progression. The pace gets faster and or the pace gets faster and the duration gets longer or the pace stays static and the duration gets longer. Those are simple progressions, right? But the body doesn't work in nice seven day weekly chunks. What I found, what I found is it's like um, the body actually works a little bit more in three week chunks, um, whether we like it or not, depending on the rate of and frequency of exposure to that magnitude and stress. So, you know, typically I've, changed my own training philosophy and cycles to a three-week approach and each week is actually very different so that first week is what i call like you know a heavy week like a lot of stimulus a lot of density a lot of work thrown in and so this might be a lot of stuff happening either really compact so one day speed work and the next the very next day you know like an endurance stamina threshold type uh, lactate type work or speed work Um, you know, some type of moderate uh, stimulus as well with like, if they're an 800 meter runner, you know, speed endurance the very next day and then a lift and then taking two days very easy, right? So a density of 40 hours of a lot of work and then 40 hours of little work. And so we cycle through that twice through the week, right? Two days on, two days easy. Then the next week is more like that Bowerman every other day approach, but a little bit more moderate hits every other day. So like, um, that first day's speed endurance and then speed and then lactate with that hard classic hard easy every other day. And then the third week is the more traditional Tuesday, Friday approach where it's all right, big workout, two days rest, big workout, two days rest, and then repeat. So if you look at it, there's actually like it's four workouts in a week, three workouts to the next week, two workouts the following week, right? And they're not all the same type of workout. The volume changes, the intensity changes, the demand changes, but the pace ask doesn't really change throughout that period. And that's something what I've learned, you know, a lot from uh, reflecting and studying Canova. And again, if you've taken our Canova course with, you know, all his training programs, you'll start to see this very clearly is, and even like say Vin Lanana's approaches, you don't automatically, because you did the work, get to advance the pace. You need to have a time trial or you need to have an overwhelming amount of feedback to demonstrate that this pace is so freaking easy, it's no longer a stimulant, it's now a maintenance type situation. Then you can advance the pace. Vin uses that in races. Bowerman used it in time trials. There, you know, Lydiard did that as well as well. So just because it seems smart to advance the pace doesn't mean the organism is ready and adapted to it. But you got to do the work. And that's the thing is finding out how to do that. And so with that progression, 
what I found is that first week people come with a lot of energy, they're ready to go. And then they get in the cloud of the fog of fatigue, right? But they're still able to do work that second week, but the work isn't as good, but the rest breaks and knowing they have an easy day in between allows them to kind of get motivated to go through the, the work. And then the, the third week is trying to help them come out of that fog of fatigue where a couple workouts, but not a whole lot. And by then they're like, oh, this is great. I get to like actually spend a lot more time rebounding and feeling good. And then energy comes back and then they feel awesome. And that in general is how I've evolved thinking about training in the like foundational phase and specific phase when we don't have races. And it's a nice way to also give people light at the end of the tunnel. So we'll work really hard, you know, but then also start to do less and less and less. Because if you do the math over that three week period, you're getting, you know, four, three, seven, nine workouts in. And that's a lot of work. But then also, too, the recovery is super generous, right? Because you're letting the body absorb acutely the stimulus you're applying, but also, too, creating enough spacing to allow them to um, absorb it globally over the long run. And I think that's where, like, when you fall into that seven-day cycle trap, you know, you can actually do more harm than good in the long run because it comes very monotonous, right? And that uh, monotony is what kills a lot of people's vigor and also um, physical capacity as the training cycle and season uh, shepherds on. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. If we're talking about training cycles, it reminds me of the the famous example that Paula Radcliffe like pushed hers to eight day cycles, you know, and then others have used like 10 day cycles instead of the weekly cycles. And I think or or Meb Kofletsky, right, yeah. who pushed in when remember in what 2013 New York City Marathon, he ran the slowest marathon ever to a calf cramp and he was on a classic seven day cycle. But then he pushed it to a nine day cycle because he's like, hey, I'm 37 or whatever. I just need more recovery. So then it'd be two days easy for every workout, right? And so a nine-day cycle, what happens spring of 2014? Wins the Boston Marathon. Yep, exactly. And I think, I think you know, this is, again, the map example is great because it's like you've got to listen to your body and understand how it adapts or look at your runners and see how they adapt. And you know, I... I I can just hear listeners being like, well, I coach high school and college. Like we always get on the seven day cycle because of, of uh, races and all that stuff. But that doesn't have to occur because what you do and what I did with college athletes, especially ones who needed more what I call space is we would do what I'd call like a, it's not, I call it like a fake workout. <laughs> I call them special workouts. Yeah. Yes. I call it special. Like, like yes. you, you're doing something and you know, it's funny enough because Canova actually does these things. He does. Yeah. If, I, if, if you, you look at, yes. Yes. If you look at some of his workouts, you'll see, uh, occasionally you'll see like speed variations. What are those? That's just like within a 10 mile run adding in, you know, 10 by 30 seconds with a, a bunch of recovery in between, you know, it's just changing the pace. It's nothing, nothing hard or. Yeah. But you hear me go, Chet, it's not, it's the, this is nothing. This is nothing. It's just, you know, it's just for, you know, amusement. And you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. But like <laughs> that, that is sometimes what, what you need to do to like create or like 
you know, give your athlete more space when they need it, you know? So I always have these things in the back of my head where it's like, okay, here's like a, a mini workout that isn't actually a workout, makes them feel like they're still on schedule, gives us a little more space between these workouts and races. And now, yeah, we're still on this like weekly kind of schedule, but we're not really because every couple of weeks we throw in this like mini fake workout or whatever, whatever have you go in the other direction. Right. So the other thing, the other thing that, you know, I would use with athletes who, again, I'm thinking of a couple of the women I had who ran really well, but, um, struggled with like the frequency of, of bouts of things is, <laughs> is we would plan theirs out where every, I think it was like every three weeks, they would skip a workout with the team and then do something on their own. Or, you know, when I'm there, when the team was doing something easy. So you, you create these little moments where it's like, okay, we're deviating from everyone else's plans and this will take you off course a little bit, but that's fine because, you know, you need the extra space. Or when I coached high school, I remember, um, one of our athletes, he was the second best runner on the team, Will, like for a long time, he would just kind of crater as, as we went along in the season. And what we, would, what we found out and what we would do is we would insert a week of essentially doing nothing but jogging around, you know, in the middle of the cross-country season. He would just take the week off from racing. He would just jog around, you know, that week and not do anything crazy in both cross and track. And that would give him like reboost, recharge him and give him that energy to, to last it the whole, whole season. So sometimes it's just about, you know, not even having cycles, but like being creative in the sense of, okay, the ideal plan, the training plan I wrote might be this, but we need to create some space in here somehow. So it's time to get creative so I can create space even in a group training environment. Yeah, that responsiveness, that's key. I mean, that's super key. Like I like the the fake workouts. I call them special workouts where they're just special and fun. And it's just six times 200 or, you know, 300, 200, 100 times one. Like just something simple where the goal is just explore what you can do. You know, just see what you know, no prescribed pace, just have fun with it, right? Um, versus having these these rigid um, instructions for what needs to be accomplished from a, uh, a, diff a difficulty standpoint. The other thing too is the rebound block, like you talked about. Like sometimes you need to insert a rebound block of training or a mini cycle, and that can be three days to 10 days, depending on the severity and necessity of um, where the athlete or athletes are at. And I've never, when I was a younger coach, I would be like, oh, we're not going to get the stimulus in. Okay, we'll make it up later. Like, you just have to look at what's going on and just nine times out of 10 now, I just say, all right, throw it out and move forward. Throw it out and move on. Like, you know, the, you know, what Dan John calls like that farmer strength, right? And what we've seen with athletes who kind of have that carefree, you know, laissez-faire, um, type training program that looks a little helter skelter or eclectic, they actually get a lot more out of it because even though our brains like to process structure and sequence, the way the body works, and this is what Bonnerchuk's methodology was all about, is it works in leaps and bounds. So constant training, 
or that block training is like you do the same thing or very similar uh, familiarity of uh, skill acquisition, refinement, density, intensity, and load. And it doesn't look like you're making a lot of progress while you're doing it. But then you take a little break, three days, 10 days, you know, a little restoration, realization period, as they call it. And then boom, you come back and all of a sudden you've just leveled up out of nowhere, right? Because you gave the body the, the, and the athlete the time and space to adapt. And it doesn't fit with any pace charts out there. <laughs> and that's the hard thing about pace charts is we have to question the map we're using and the limitations of the map. And this is where like studying about the fascial system and getting a better understanding of that, that is a different map of movement than just the muscular map. There's a non-caloric map out there. And, you know, it's not commonplace yet, but we're starting to understand how it is working in synergy with the caloric movement map of the muscles, right? To create motion and sustain motion. And same thing with training, right? We, if you just have a pace um, volume tabulation map, that's only going to take you so far. And this is where the science of understanding that training is the effect the work has on the body is the key here. And this is where like why a lot of athletes tend to blame coaches or blame workouts for their underperformance or poor performance when actually like the foundation of their work uh, is predicated on uh, or their expression of their work or expression of their performance is predicated on lack of hydration, lack of sleep, poor uh, nutrition, you know, poor diet. Those things, you know, we harp on a lot because they're very controllable, but nine times out of 10, people just think, oh, I did the workout. It's good. Let me go to McDonald's and have a Big Mac and fries and a milkshake and I'll be good to go. And it's not the case at all. Right. And I, you know, one thing in there that I think, you know, is surrounding that or contributing to that as well is if you look at the college and high school level is there's that good research that shows like stress around exam time influences not only performance, but adaptations, you know, and I, you know, remember conversations with some really good coaches who coach at, you know, upper echelon universities. And they'd always tell me, they'd be like, just, you know, midterm time just kills us. Like you can just see it in the training that the athletes do and how they're getting back back that like one to two week period just kills us and we can't do anything except like jog around and do xyz that isn't that hard and i think this is what we're we're kind of getting at in midterms you know that's not only probably lack of sleep but also other stress and physiological emotional stress as well um but what we're getting at is it's those messy parts of the training those messy parts that like you can you might be able to predict a little bit in terms of this like midterm time, but you don't know how people are going to adapt and you know who will handle it well and who won't. Like it's those things that create that messy day to day training process, and it's those things that if you can be proactive, if you can read the feedback and anticipate some of um, some of these, you know items then you're going to be in a better place and that to me is like what training and coaching is all about 
is it's not about necessarily writing the best training program. It's then taking that into the real world and saying, okay, here's all these messy things. How do I deal with this? And how do I like bolster these individuals to, you know, hopefully be a little bit resilient to some of these things that are, they're going to have to deal with. That's a good point, Steve. It's also too knowing your athlete and athletes and what they have a high sensitivity threshold Mm -hmm. to and a low sensitivity threshold. So for athletes, like, you know, I've, coach a lot of athletes and some athletes have a really low sensitivity and actually get a boost and a perk by doing, uh, you know, different types of weight room workout or speed work or plyometrics, right? That more kind of muscular, powerful, middle distance, you know, type runner versus some other athletes deflates them high sensitivity. You know, they don't bounce back quickly from it. So when you get in those moments, when you see that trend line and their expression of, how they are perceiving the level of effort of the work, what, you know, their motivation to, um, you know, kind of like sustain discomfort and also, you know, push themselves is kind of waxing and wanting and just not there as much. So they're not getting that kind of toughness quotient out of it. Then you have to think real quick and do something like we call, you know, I call special, which is just special for that athlete, something that helps them rebound, right? Versus our athletes have a really low sensitivity to long and strong stuff. And a long run can actually be really therapeutic for them. Just an easy long run in the forest, right? Uh, So that's where being ready with, you know, those plan A or plan B's, plan C's, and also as a coach, documenting that as well. So like one of the hardest things to do is um, you got to have the tools and skill set and toolbox to be able to make those snap decisions in the moment to course correct if necessary, but then document it in some way, shape, and form on your training plan. So with that athlete, you can start to see the trend lines, right? Um, before I didn't do that, uh, when I was a younger coach, I just made made the alteration and then we just kept going, right? And so I couldn't really get a clear picture with an athlete of, well, I see that they have this pattern of when we do these many workouts or these types of workouts with this much volume that they tend to start to, you know, uh, talk about stagnation or, or their excessive fatigue or, you know, things start to go downhill. Or if we start to do too much acidosis tolerance work, again, we have that stagnation as well, right? Where they just don't have the appetite for training. And that's the main thing I talk about athletes today is what's your appetite level for this type of work today? Um, and that will tell you a lot. Because you're usually working with highly motivated people and they have a, a strong appetite to work and improve. But if they don't have the appetite there and that's atypical of them, that's a clear signal you do need a course correct. And so that's where you have to ask, like, all right, what would you have an appetite for today? Like, put it on the athlete. Ask them what they feel like they have the ability or capability to do that day. Um, and that's really important to hear that feedback and then make corrections that are aligned with that. A good example that just happened recently was my wife just got her flu shot and she's trained for, you know, San Jose rock and roll half marathon, been having a great series and couple weeks of like workouts and overall um, training density and volume best she's had in a little while, but that flu shot just totally derailed her. Like it just, she was already training at a high level and then the flu shot came in and it was just like that tipping point. And so this for a week now, we've just done almost nothing like kind of just jogging around easy days 
two days completely off because her body is creating antibodies to fight this flu virus that's in her to create that adaptation on t and to ask her to keep training at the level she's training at. I mean, it would just further corrode and erode her system and, you know, uh, her, her well being. And it's like, so I asked her, you know, we, she wanted to try a workout the track and said, okay, great. We'll try this workout, but we'll go through activation and her feedback was like, ah, oh, I don't know. You know, and she's a good, has a high work ethic. So she's like, well, let me try it. And I said, well, let's just try 400s. Cause the goal was to do 800s. So let's just try four hundreds with lots of recovery. And, you know, we did two or three and she's like, I, I just don't feel like my legs aren't moving. I don't have a pop. I'm not waking up. Like there was no kind of like elevation of engagement. Right. So then it was like, all right, completely cut the workout, go jog 10 minutes. And your job, you know, was to sit on the couch the rest of the day. <laughs> that was it. That was that was it. And it wasn't a freak out. It was just a, I remind her, you still have the flu shot in you. And she goes, oh, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you got to respect the body's not going to adapt to the flu virus in two days, three days. It's going to adapt however long it needs to. And so we just have to respect that until you have two or three days in a row, you feel normal again. That's how you know you're good to go. But until then, let's not have any like uh, premature false starts here. You know, that story brings up a good point um, that I think is sometimes overlooked or neglected, which is trust your athletes. You know, if they're if they're telling you something, if they're sending you feedback and saying like, man, I just I'm off today. I just don't feel it like something's weird. It's your job to like inspect that and like try and get to the bottom of it. What you don't want to do, which is like the old school, old school football coach approach and also old school, sometimes running approach, which is view that, oh, man this kid is weak. Like he's making excuses. Like he's telling me he's feeling off. Well, he should push through it. He should always push through it. And you know, sometimes you're going to have to work through workouts where you do feel off and get used to it. And that's fine. But other times, like you're going to pull the plug, you know, it's, it's the old Canova saying, which he says, if the essentially, and I'm going to paraphrase, if the physiology is what matters, then hit the physiology and push through, even if it's slow as shit. This is my yep. paraphrase. Mm -hmm. If the yep. pace is what matters, right? If you need to like run specific 5K pace for these intervals because you're trying to ingrain that, then if they are feeling off and not able to hit the pace, then scrap it. Like go rest for a couple days and then come back to it. You know, that's essentially the, the Canova model. And I think there's a lot of lot of truth to that. But in order to make that decision, you have to you have to trust your athletes and understand what they're they're, you know, trust them and what they're telling you. And I know that's difficult sometimes for college and especially high school coaches who, you know, go in not trusting their athletes. And I get that. But like you gotta you gotta trust them. And like ingrain that that responsibility and trust until they kind of prove otherwise. And if they prove otherwise, then they're not like, you know, they're trying to get out of things and not do workouts and not do that stuff. Then you need to attack things from a different angle and ask, okay, why is this kid trying to get out of it? Why isn't his motivation there to push? Like, why does he have this mindset? And there could be a myriad of reasons, but I think for most of us, it's like, 
once you get that established like relationship, trust them when they tell you like, Hey, I'm off or Hey, something's weird. Or, Hey, you know, I just can't push for today. I don't know what it is. Like kids don't need to be, and adults don't need to be told they're weak. That doesn't do anyone any good. Trust them. Yeah. And you know, that's really good point, Steve. It's, also remembering stuff doesn't go perfectly all the time, right? There's, there's ups and downs and especially dealing with adolescent athletes and collegiate athletes. One of the key things you do have to be sensitive and hopefully have open communication about is their alcohol consumption because alcohol consumption, you know, wreaks havoc on the body, right? It dehydrates the fascial system. Uh, which makes it m- harder to move. You're less mobile to move, less resiliency in movement. Two, it elevates liver enzymes for, depending on the amount of alcohol they take in, for a long period, you know, sustained period after that intake. So if they binge on the weekend and then you hear about it as a coach and then you put them through a really hard um, conditioning session that they're not fit enough to sustain normally, plus with the dehydration, liver enzyme elevation. I mean, the body can't process now these new instead of influx of toxins that you're injecting through the metabolism, through hard, laborious work, because already processing other toxins is still trying to clear, right? Uh, it's like, what was um, what was that unfortunate uh, Houston debacle with the women's soccer team uh, that happened a couple oh, yeah. of years ago, Steve? <laughs> I don't know how much I can talk about that, but that. But one... I mean, it was it was that yeah. it was a kind of perfect storm of those yeah. things, right? It was like using exercise as punishment, you know, because they heard about like the social activity that involved a lot of alcohol, and then you know several athletes went to uh, the hospital with that um, that liver and kidney dysfunction. Was it rhabdo? Yeah, and it, that was you know overall it was just it was a lot of errors happening concurrently and not the right approach, right? Because if an athlete, you know, tells me, hey, I had too much to drink or I had a lot to drink or this or that, I'm not going to get mad at them and be like, oh, you're not being self-disciplined enough. It is what it is. And now as a coach, you know, it's it's a sunken cost fallacy. Like you can't go back and have that alcohol not, you know, uningested, right? It's in there. It's in the system. With that knowledge, though, you can then program appropriately and say, hey, look, all right, this is how much you had to drink. You know, you got this drunk or whatever. I'm not going to shame you. But because of it, your system is now, you know, really, really uh, impacted. So we have to now take it easy. Otherwise, you're going to, you know, be a lot worse for the wear. And then it's a different conversation if it's habitual abuse or stuff like that. But sometimes we have to be aware of that to make, uh, you know, the correct decision because everyone's like threshold is different, but when you're in a compromised state, your tolerance is a lot lower. Right. And so what I mean by that, like there's interesting research that shows like, um, you know, the, the submerging the hand in ice water, um, research with like a group of just sanitary people and then also a group of athletes. Right. And what they found was that everyone had the same pain threshold, like whether you were a sanitary athlete, like that, that threshold for when it started to actually hurt when your hand was in the water was exactly the same. The different was the athletes could keep their hand in the water for significantly longer than the sanitary people because they had higher pain tolerance. So even though at the same moment, 
uh, in time, a minute, two minutes, whatever, they started to feel those sensations of pain. The tolerance was a lot higher for the athletes and the sanitary people. So the tolerance for even your athlete when they are under the weather, a little hungover, dehydrated, lack of sleep, their tolerance is going to be a lot lower than when they're ready to go and good to go, right? And this is the thing why recovery is so important or that health and wellness is so important because if you don't have that, if you're not showing up to practice ready with you know, that sleep, that nutrition, that hydration, um, that focus on the day, well, then that what they can tolerate is severely impacted as well, as was the example with my wife. It was like she couldn't tolerate even quarters at a slower speed than she had been running and training for 800s and miles the prior three weeks. That showed me, okay, her tolerance is super low. There's really no point in, in this activity because it's just going to continue to corrode and erode her rather than actually provide a uh, a new challenge and stimulus that's going to elevate her. So we just cut the workout because of it. You know, I think that I think you, the being open and honest and like having that communication with your athletes, regardless of what level is important, because like that gives you the necessarily necessary feedback to adjust. And, you know, take the alcohol example. If you look at the research, like just for example, it will disrupt or suppress growth hormone by, gosh, there was one study that showed something like 60 to 70% drop in growth hormone um, from alcohol consumption, depending on the number of drinks when you, when you sleep, which is when most of your growth hormone is uh, produced or your biggest hit of growth hormone is produced. So that right there impacts the recovery, right? And I'm not saying like, hey, you create this environment where anything goes, but like you need to be responsive. You need to know what's going on. If not, you end up in one, you can end up in one of those situations uh, like the uh, soccer team example John gave there, um, which I'll leave it at that. But it's, it's like you got to know these things, you know, and I'd always, I'd always with the college kids when I was coaching there. I'd always try and create the environment where I was like, I'm not going to be mad if you tell me. Like, will I be a little bit disappointed? Sure, but that's not mad. I'm disappointed in the sense that you like chose these things that ran against it, but I'm not going to hold it over your head, right? I'm going to say, okay, we'll adjust and like, you know, try to do better, which is essentially what it what it is and try to do better in the sense of, you know, sometimes it's just around races. It just kind of depends what, what athlete you're dealing with. But like that open and honesty is important. And, you know, at Houston, we had a, at least pre-COVID, we had this rule, which was like, if you need to skip a morning practice, you can skip it. You just have to be honest with me why, right? So if you if someone texts me and says, hey, I was up until, you know, 1 a.m. studying, like, can I skip practice? Be like, sure, whatever, you know? And sometimes that would, sometimes it would be something that I wish they didn't do, you know, went to uh, a party after the meet, like kind of missed the morning long run. And yeah, that sucks. But at the same point, like that allows and opens up a, 
point of conversation with that athlete to be like, well, thanks for your honesty. I'm going to adjust the training, but like, let's have a conversation on like your priorities and where you're prioritizing things, you know, and what matters to you. That's a lot better than an athlete I had coaching at the collegiate level who didn't tell me about going to a, you know, a party made to the morning long run, ran to the forest. And then as soon as he's outside of my view, Slept for the two hours just in a ditch on the side of the trail. Oh, God. <laughs> when I found out about that, I was like, dude, you should have told me. Like, he was like, just told his, like, you know, boys, hey, wake me up when you guys get back. <laughs> I didn't find out about that until years later. It's funny now, but had I found out about the moment, yeah, it would have been a different dialogue. Oh, man. That's wild. But, you know, those, those are, this is when we talk about the messiness, this is the messiness, you know, we like to think that we can live in a perfect world where all these athletes are doing exactly what we, you know, think or prescribe or doing everything right. And sometimes that's not the case, especially at the high school and college level, even at the professional level, like stuff happens, right? We're not robots. So as coaches, like you can either put the blinders on and think that they're perfect or live in reality and realize that, hey, you know, sometimes we're going to have to deviate and adjust and all that stuff. And it's all it's all good. And that's the scientists, scientific mindset and like the science of the training process. Our saying is all an experiment, right? It's an experiment about if we do this, we think we hypothesize this will happen. And then aligning the, you know, hypothesis with actual outcomes and results and then course correcting and readjusting to get better alignment. And part of that uh, scientific method is that honesty that comes with, we thought by doing this, it was going to produce this result or this outcome. And then seeing where that deviation is. And so that's where the dialogue comes in. But that's also to, you know, as coaches, having humility to understand the training is just a signal. It's not the end all be all. We tend to have that action bias, right? Where we think the training is going to create this response in the athlete. And then we can just set and forget it for the other 22 hours of the day. And they're going to just get better magically. Versus we know now that covering the basics and being and mastering the basics is really important. And, you know, you can have all the fancy gadgets or performance centers or, you know, cool new tech. But, you know, if you don't have the foundational stuff of, all right, just that that sleep routine, nutrition and hydration that's adequate for the needs of the athlete and, you know, during the training cycle or block they're in. No amount of Theraguns, uh, you know, special pressurized, um, you know, boots, cryogenic chambers, all that cool stuff, it, it's not going to have an impact. And I sometimes you see athletes think, oh, okay, I just got to like use the Theragun for here two minutes real quick and like, boom, now I'm good to go. Or, you know, this is going to be helpful. But if they're in a chronic dehydration state because they're just, I don't like water. Or, you know, they're, they're chronically, their calories that they're intaking are very poor nutritional solutions to their needs, right? They're not getting enough protein um, or they're not getting enough carbohydrate or they're limiting calorie intake because they think like, oh, the only way to get faster is to be skinnier. These, again, are all really important dialogues to have because 
you know, I can't express, that's really the journey we sign up for when we, we coach someone is to go through these ups and downs, peaks and valleys, this messiness, this frustration. I wish it were just nice and neat, you know, inputs and outputs. You run these many miles at this pace, you get this fast. And that's seductive. And it's why like people love Daniel's training formula because it's a seductive simplicity, but not the case at all. And so just being aware of that and having that be transparent on day one, I think is really important. Yeah. You know, I think that if I was to sum up this podcast episode, that's what it is, that transparency and awareness. And as a coach, you're trying to cultivate that awareness, right? And that's why we say like have these honest conversations like trust your athletes like adjust as needed if they're telling you that you know they're dying and it sucks like you gotta adjust and you know i i think that often what we think happens is we think oh we'll write the magic plan we'll have the right program X, Y, and Z athletes are improving. And it's almost like you're on the train or you're off of it. And if you're on it, you're great. But if you get off of it, there's no catching up to the train, you know? And your job as a coach isn't just to take that train with like, and whoever survives, survives. Your job as a coach is to like, some people are going to need like pick back up. Some people are going to need to get in, you know, get on the Greyhound bus and keep chugging along instead of the high speed rail but you've got to figure out how to adjust adapt and deal with like especially athletes who don't maybe handle the you know typical or normal training sessions or normal cycles like be flexible be adaptable it's all it's almost like we have these rules and this heuristics which work for a lot of people but they don't work for everybody so you need to be the like scientist experimenter in of one saying, hey, if this isn't working, if they're not adapting in the direction that I think they should be, I got to try something else. And sometimes that something else is, you know, way different than you thought it would be. I mean, that's the essence of Sarity. That's the essence of Lydia. They experiment and figure out what works and kept experimenting and figuring out what worked for the individuals that, that they had working with them. And motivation's key right? There's weak motivation and strong or high quality motivation. And a lot of us, I think, fall victim to weak motivation. So, I mean, you know, one common relatively weak form of motivation, you know, just includes doing things just because we're going to get a reward, right? Like a medal, a carrot on the stick, you know, and, you know, doing things because, you know, we'd feel guilty if we didn't do them. That's pretty weak motivation, right? And so people, fail the diet, they fail the training plan, they fail the New Year's resolution because it's an outcome-based motivation, which is kind of, you know, very shallow. And as soon as you start to get inputs and signaling that the outcome is going to be more difficult than you thought, or you're not going to have it achieved as a quick time horizon as you initially planned, then we start to let's just lose contact and engagement. The higher quality or stronger form of motivation is like something that's intrinsically uh, enjoyable, interesting, like important to you, that kind of more mastery approach, right? And we see this with Kipchoge uh, a lot recently is understanding, like he's actually a really good example of his uh, language and understanding is I'm 
motivated by mastery. And you know, the mastery goal orientation is about how, what's the best I can do in this circumstance with the training I have behind me, with the conditions internal and external I'm uh, working against and working with. You know, it's not, he's not saying, oh, I need to run this pace per mile or else I need to set the world record. You know, he always talks about the beautiful race, running his best race. And if it happens to be a world record, that's great. But he's never, oh, I didn't run fast enough. I didn't get that time. And that's where I think if your athletes are motivated by weak motives, like um, that are a little bit more egotistical, a little bit more pride oriented to show everyone how good they are or, you know, to get praise on social media or solely to run X time and everything else is a failure or to get X place and everything else is a failure, then yeah, you're gonna have troubles in the process as soon as the inputs start to deviate from the directionality of those weak motives. But the mastery process, there is a valley, you know, in in that skill acquisition. And if you just say, hey, we got to focus on getting you getting better and how you quantify that and qualify that's really important. So there's objective and subjective benchmarks and milestones. Then you can celebrate the small wins. You can go, hey, that was really key. You usually, you know, at this pace or at this point in the race, you know, you usually give up or usually, you know, you have this like uh, negative self-talk or, you know, off task mindset. And, you know, you reported to me that at that point you had this coping strategy and you're able to switch back in and stay on task. Boom. You know, and that helps spurred you like to stay with the pace a little bit longer, stay with the pack a little bit longer. And you made a step forward in that. And look at that. You got rewarded with a good time. You got rewarded with a better place. You got rewarded with helping the team score more points in cross country. And this is what like really good coaches do. Mike Smith, he's the best at this that I know at the high level where he's talking about that as mastery outcomes, mastery of process, mastery goals, not, Hey, we need to win another national championship here. And because of that, and having highly talented motivated people, motivated people gives them a framework that's adaptable, but also champions the small wins when they happen, whether it's in a race, in a workout. And that's the value of that constant feedback that he gets through having the athletes fill out essentially every night in a shared Google doc with him, uh, their reflections on that training process or their racing that happened that day. You know, I love the Kipchoge quote. I think it was, I forget what marathon it was before. I think it was before uh, Berlin where he told the New York times, he said, to be precise, I am just going to try to run my personal best. If it comes as a world record, I would appreciate it, but I would treat it as a personal best. And Kipchoge gets a lot of credit for being this like Zen master of running, but I, you know, philosopher of running. But I think it's brilliant because it's exactly you know what you would hope for the best, one of the best of all time, and the best in the world. Because it's there's simplicity in that statement, but it also, you know, these things we talk about on like follow mastery, like go after process goals, don't get attached to outcomes. And when you say those things, people go like, yeah, 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 I get it. But in the back of their head, they say, but, you know, in the back of their head, they're like, but, you know, in order to really achieve, I gotta, I gotta worry about the outcome. 
I got to, you know, there's that little doubt. I got to worry about the outcome. I got to focus on this to really achieve because winners win. That's what we do. But then we have Elliot Kipchoge, the man who wins everything, who dominates everything for like a decade now. And he's saying, you know what? I'm just trying to run my best. If if my best becomes a world record, I would appreciate that. Like, it's brilliance, man. Like, that that thinking is brilliance. And I get that it's hard to ingrain, especially in a in a um, world and society that, that puts outcomes very high. But, you know, as a coach, that's part of your job is like, how do you get people maybe calling it the Kipchoge mindset? How do you get your runners to adapt, adopt the Kipchoge mindset, like in focus on the process, trying to get better and the rest of it, you just, you know, focus on what you can control, put yourself into place to perform and see what happens. And there's good science on this too. Like we know that when you focus on the things you can't control, uncontrollables, your anxiety goes way up through the roof, right? We know that, you know, this comparison trap with say social media now, right? The excessively filtered images that are on Instagram and how, you know, for young, uh, you know, women who already have insecurity about body issues by going on Instagram, it increases that anxiety you know, several fold. Right. But the understanding is, it's like this filtered life, perfect life, you know, you know, the hard part about social media is a lot of people use it to project an image of a body you can never have places. You can never go clothes. You can never wear this look at me comparison trap. And so then your calibration becomes how do I compare to this quote unquote influencer or person I saw on social media. And you're never going to be able to get there as quickly as you want, because there's certain disadvantages you might have in terms of, you just can't filter quite as well as your smartphone can filter, <laughs> you know, in reality and day to day. Cause you see a lot of these people in person and they're just normal as shit. And so it's just getting a reminder that like the control, the controllables, so you can't control the outcome. You can't control the time that's on the clock. It has to be an exploratory surprise, right? But you can control your response and mindset to when things get difficult. You can control your reappraisal. You know, this is a dialogue I have with the athlete I'm working with right now is he has a lot of race day anxiety. And so, you know, I said, well, we got to reappraise how you're viewing the activity. And you have to shift your mindset and shift your feedback and shift your self-talk. And, you know, for him, we came up with very specific coping strategies. And as a coach, we often think if they just do the work, they run the time, they'll be able to magically perform on race day. But experienced coaches, we know this is not the case. Race anxiety is high, right? Because if you make it a compliance or exam activity where it's like you did this in workouts, you can do it in races, you just have to make it happen, you know, Time trials, they might be able to away with it because the inputs are all known. The pacer's going to go out this. I have competitors who are at this, um, you know, ability in the in my heat, in my race. So I just got to lock in and let my body do what it's supposed to do. But most races, championship races, uh, especially, there's so much uncertainty because you don't know. There's no clear front runner in the beginning of the race. We don't know who's going to do what when. The goal is just to compete to see 
how quickly you can get to the finish line. But I really like this understanding of the, you know, I forget who said it, but the, that the finish line is a trampoline. And so what that means is when you think about the finish line, your, your idea should bounce back to the present moment. So if you're thinking about, oh, how does this impact the finish or how far away I am for the finish or what's my time going to be at the finish or what place am I going to be at the finish? When you think about that, have it, have it be a trampoline where the, your thoughts and your, uh, awareness bounces back to the present moment and what to do right now. And when I started to apply that with different athletes, it really helped them overcome their race day anxiety because when, and they just started to see how much they're thinking about what's going to happen and what the outcome is going to be at the finish that they had no control over. And so anytime they thought of it, they just bounce back to the present moment and say, what can I do now to make the best I can now stay with this pack, stay with this pack for another chunk it, right? Stay with it for another hundred meters, stay with it to the top of the hill, stay. Oh, I thought, uh, you know, the pace feels a lot harder than I thought it was going to be at this stage in the race. What can I do now? Just, all right, to here, keep with it and then reappraise, reassess at this stage. And by chunking it and having those clear coping strategies in the moment, you give people controllable tools and action items to focus on rather than like worrying about the, uh, you know, end result and faulting back on the number one thing you don't want to do on race day, which is your bodily sensations and your perception of difficulty. If it's injury, that's one thing, but it's always going to feel hard every time on race day. And we know through like the research that if you focus too much on your bodily sensations and analyzing how easy or hard or, uh, you know, fatiguing something feels that it's significantly a corrode performance because your body's naturally going to go into a protective uh, state and mechanism. Yeah. You know, you summed it up really well there, which is like you're trying to prevent or adapt your body so it doesn't like retreat into this defend mode. Right? Yeah, this threat state, right? Yep. It's like once you get in this threat state, kind of like you re you you then go into these natural pres- preservation modes, which are like so ingrained because they've like evolved in us and all that stuff for millennia. So like <laughs> you can't you 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 know what I mean? Like you can't you can't think your way through a threat. So. Like you're no, all you can do is retreat. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so your job is to like, you know, to put yourself in the best spot, focus on the things that you can control, like make sure that if you start rolling down the mountain towards this threat, that you're using these tactics so that you don't go full into the state. And that's all it is about. And that is, again, that is why like, handling things that you can control, like learning different coping strategies and mechanisms, but also like focusing on this process instead of like being inundated with outcome or this comparison, because the comparison just puts you in a threat state of like, oh, I'm not good enough. I don't measure up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And just pushes you further down the rabbit hole. And even comparison can be comparison with yourself uh, in the, the threat state, right? You know, and, and that's the difference. The threat is also is how burdensome is the ask, right? How burdensome is the, the training ask, their competitive ask, what have you. And so when we view things as a burden, it becomes a threat versus what we want is a challenge state, right? That thrill of the chase. And that's, you know, there's arguments out there that that's actually we're hardwired for the thrill of the chase. Like 
that's why endurance runners are endurance runners because it's a thrill to go out and like, can I catch prey today for seven, eight hours, right? I mean, that was one reason we evolved as humans to be bipedal and have this sustained endurance capacity. But I'll share a story uh, with um, Luisa Gravera at NAU. I was there a couple of years ago and, you know, Luis had ran a fantastic time at um, Azusa Pacific in the 1500 meters his freshman year, I think like, you know, in the 330 high, which was like outstanding, especially pre-Super Shoe era for a freshman. And they were doing a um, eight times 400 meter, really hard acidosis tolerance, you know, alactic type session at 7,000 feet the, the, the following year. And Luis was struggling with it, right? Like you had Brody Hastings and other people like just crushing 54s, 55s, and Luis was starting to fall off. And he, he was, they did this similar workout the year before. And he goes up to Mike Smith and says, I'm not running as fast as I am in this workout at this time before Azusa. How am I ever going to be able to, to run as good as I did last year? And like, it was a big coaching moment for Mike and he handled it really well. It was just like, whoa, 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 you know, like one, you have all these miles and all these um, races and experience under your belt. Don't think that just had disappeared into the ether. We're not starting from scratch. Two, like you're doing more higher work, global workload than you did this time last year. So you're more fatigued. You're not as fresh. The fact you're running these marks at 7,000 feet with the amount of fatigue in your body because of the work we're doing, because we're pointing more towards NCAs rather than just trying to get you the NCAs. We're trying to get you ready to compete at NCAs, you know, uh, spoke to the the body of work and repositioned Luis and reoriented about where he was in the training cycle and sequence and progression and what the ultimate um, challenge was. The challenge wasn't to go and run a faster 15 acutely in the uh, at Azusa Pacific than he did the prior year. The challenge was to get ready to compete at a higher level at a national championship, which he had wasn't able to do the prior year. Right. And so with that, that then comfort him, like it gave him perspective. And so he was able, and then Mike was like, just see what you can do in these last two, just go for it. Just, just have fun with it. Just run hard. And you know what? If it's 59, that's fine. If it's 49, that's fine. Like I got no expectation. Just see what you can do. And you know, he smashed like a couple at like 52, 53. It was awesome. But that, recalibration and reorientation that's the science of the training process like we as we've talked about all along throughout this podcast it's giving athletes clear coping mechanisms in the moment or continuing on with thematic coping mechanisms that they you know are are utilizing for their development and progress when things go sour and they're going to go sour you cannot have a training process. You cannot have a training cycle. You cannot, you cannot have anything. You can't have the sweetness of getting fitter without the sourness of frustration and setback and hard days, crappy workouts. And it's how you deal with it that matters the most. Couldn't agree more. I think that's the perfect summary and way to end because it it's, sets the expectations, not only for the athlete, but for you as a coach and setting those appropriately is what matters. And the expectation is it, nothing is perfect. It's going to go sour to get the sweetness. You got to kind of work through that. So 
If you enjoyed this conversation, guess what you need to do? You need to go join the Running Scholar Program because it it's going to continue. You know where it continues? It continues in the clubhouse. The, the clubhouse, baby! That's where we're going to because we're going to have this these types of conversations with other other coaches, with hundreds of other coaches, and learn from them and you know keep diving deep. So if you want to join... Join the Running Scholar Program. You'll be a part of the clubhouse instantly. You're in the club. You know, join on in, and you'll get all the other wonderful things we do with the Scholar Program as well. So, yeah, you get to see the conversations that are happening. You get to observe. You get to interact. You get to level up. Like, this is what's so cool about it. It's not just that one way. We're telling you, you're passively consuming content. You're actively engaged in it you're asking questions you say hey coach why'd you do that hey coach why'd you do this here's what i did what do you guys think like it's so cool to see people utilizing it i mean and you know what it just compounds so make the investment in yourself for less than a dollar a day to one get access to all the courses steve and i put out in the scholar the rank scholar program but then two i mean steve and i are saying we should actually charge you know five six seven eight dollars a day just for the clubhouse because it's that valuable of a resource and it's just going to compound. But no, don't worry. It's less than a buck a day. Level up. It's the best investment you can make. All right. Get on board. Join the club. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening.